Okay, so we have another Down the Hatch podcast, and we're very excited because this is our second expert rant. And today, Alicia and I are excited yes. that we have Dr. Julie Barkmeyer Kramer here. Doctor, now, do you go by Dr. Barkmeyer Kramer, Dr. Barkmeyer, or Dr. Kramer? I go by those names, and I go by JBK, <laughs> JBK. and I go by Julie. <laughs> so I know I call you Julie, but I was wondering when, you, when you're being formal, do we need all three? No. No? Okay. I, I go by Hey You. Hey You. <laughs> hey You, do you mind telling us more about yourself? Introduce yourself. Um, sure. So I am currently at the University of Utah. I'm in the Division of Otolaryngology, and I'm the Clinic Director for Voice Disorders Center there. I have an affiliation with Communication Sciences and Disorders, but I am not an official faculty member in their department. I'm more in the School of Medicine. And my current position is primarily research-based, but um, I would say I'm a combination of research clinic and administration. Wow, that's a lot. And so you have been a laryngeal, you're definitely a laryngeal expert. And I know that your Mm -hmm. primary emphasis is voice, but you went to the very first DRS meeting in 1985. So you are no stranger to swallowing. And in fact, you did a study on supine swallowing and or upside down swallowing. Which one? Supine. Supine. Mm -hmm. Did you do an upside down swallowing study? I I don't remember that I did. It was supine. (laughs) It was supine. So on that point, you have three topics that you would like to expert rant on. Your first topic is, drum roll. Um, Okay, so it's not really a rant, but I guess it would be, um, how do we get the physicians Mm -hmm. to address us like the experts we are? And I think the biggest problem I see has to do with, um, if we want to be viewed as an expert, we should be an expert. Mm. And I actually, yeah, so actually I had a student come up to me recently at a meeting and remind me that he was one of my students back at the University of Arizona. Mm -hmm. And he was a master's student of mine. Now he's in Las Vegas and I ran into him at a national convention. And he said to me, you know, you taught me so much. And the things that you taught me were those little side conversations you would have with us as students. And I didn't remember half of what he shared. And you blacked things... out while you were ranting about it. <laughs> I <your> guess. Soapbox. <laughs> but, I, but I also thought, oh gosh, I hope I didn't come across badly to my yeah. students. But the one comment that I gave them, and it was always under the same context, was if you want to be viewed as an expert, be the expert. And it was always in the context of working with physicians. Yeah. Physicians know their anatomy, they know their physiology, and all you have to do is use the wrong term Mm -hmm. or not know your stuff, and you have lost clout with them that you know your stuff. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I see all the time our colleagues interacting with physicians where they don't know that term or that part. And what happened most recently was that we had a situation where some pretty junior clinicians were evaluating somebody who had been transferred to our care. Mm -hmm. And they observed that the bolus was not going in a place that looked right, but it went down while there was an esophageal perforation. Oh, interesting. And the immediate impression was, well, they cleared everything. And so they were recommended to have a normal diet. Mm -hmm. But within a couple of days, this patient developed a fever. And it was discovered, in fact, that they had an esophageal perforation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that um, raised some concerns on the part of one of the physicians that we work with, that our profession shouldn't be doing these swallows because they didn't recognize an aberrant pathway. Yeah. And they made a wrong recommendation that could have cost this person their life. Yes. Yeah. And, and if, they, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, if you're not familiar with doing a lot of esophageal studies, having a perforation and a leak into the, the mediastinum or anywhere, that's not, that mm-hmm. can be extremely life-threatening for a yeah. patient within yep. a matter of days. This isn't like pneumonia where sometimes it takes a while to develop. This is a, a really serious condition right. that mm-hmm. when you're, familiar with normal anatomy something aberrant like that becomes very apparent yep and something as swallowing experts i think should be obvious yeah that's right yeah so again creating some standards around some of the minimal levels of training would be really nice 
I think one thing I I don't want to rant too loudly about. Um, Go for it. We're going okay. to poke the We're poking the You're bear. You're in the wrong crowd. <laughs> well, so, so I guess when, when those kinds of things happen, I think to myself, is it the clinician's fault? They were recent graduates of accredited training programs. Yeah meeting the requirements of our association's minimum levels of graduate training. And I have to think, well, maybe we aren't trained enough. There was, when I entered into the field, I knew that this was not a supported area of our field. Mm -hmm. So in 1985, my initial mentor was Adrienne Perlman. And at our site, she was um, somebody who was practicing the swallowing work and her colleagues were unsure we wanted to adopt this into our profession at the time. Mm-hmm. So she knew full well there were a lot of questions around it, but those who got into it at that time really knew their stuff. They had to. They had yeah. to, because they had to earn from the yeah. physicians Street the red. respect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she got to where the radiologist just handed her the suite every noontime so that they had a rad tech. But she knew better how to interpret those than they did. So I just want to emphasize what you're saying, Julie. You're saying to me that at a time where it wasn't even in our scope of practice, when radiology didn't even think swallow plus SLP equals makes sense, that Mm -hmm. wasn't an equation that anyone had formulated, she had earned their respect so much that someone who was doing something out of their scope of a practice was doing it with so much respect that they handed over the yep. sweet so she can do it. Meanwhile, we have people now who it is in their scope of practice. They supposedly, supposedly learn this stuff, are fighting with the radiologists to even get them to stop turning off fluoro when yep. someone aspirates. Yeah. That's right. So that is the power of earning somebody's respect. That is right. But that respect can only be earned when someone has confidence in their knowledge base and mm-hmm. able to demonstrate it. Is that yep. fair? Yes. yes that I was agree. a perfect paraphrase. Yeah. Yep. Knowledge is power. <clears throat> I think if we're going to have respect in the field, that has to be the baseline Yep. is being able to walk the walk and talk the talk and having a dysphagia course on your resume doesn't mean anything. Yeah. No, it really doesn't. Know. Guess what else? She probably got an A in her dysphagia class if she had one. I just want to point that out. I say that to my students Mm, all the time. mm -hmm. If you can just get into the grad school, and when you get into grad school, forget about the grades. Don't let the grades be a barrier to learning. Oh, absolutely. So that you can just soak up the information because you're going to be across from some another speech pathologist who might be, in your opinion, subpar, and you both got A's in dysphagia in your dysphagia course. That's true. It's not just about the course. It's about giving yourself the opportunity to soak it up properly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. and let's just talk some data. Asha um, had a report in 2015 that did a survey of speech pathologists who work in the healthcare system, whether it's nursing homes or inpatient care or rehab, and they spend 80% of their time treating, evaluating, managing dysphagia. Mm-hmm. Yep. How much dysphagia does a graduate master's level get? Right. A course? Yeah. One course, if they're maybe. Lucky. If, if they're, they're lucky. lucky. Yeah. Yeah, a, a lot of courses, but it's, we, I don't know, what do we have, 350 programs in our country, something mm-hmm, like that, mm-hmm. and I have seen graduates come with a one-credit seminar yes. in which they split across topics, dysphagia, voice, and craniofacial, yep. yet the program that I worked in for 14 years had five child language yep, courses, yes, yeah. and we think that's okay. Yeah, well, we don't think it's okay. <clears throat> the issue is there aren't experts to teach it. Um, as and there, the thing is that it's it's not just are there experts to teach it, but I have to say to my students in the very beginning of the classes, I'm going to do everything I can in this lecture hall for you. Yep. But until they get enough placements that they can all access during the time they're here to actually be across the bedside with a patient, yep. I still can't do everything I can. I can make sure you know what the physiology is, but in that moment, in the radiology suite, when you have to figure out the next bolus, that's going to come with experience, right? right? And it's difficult for me to, yeah. to do both things. Yeah. And so uh, I think that's part of the other issue is getting access to patients. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the other thing that they can control, they can control, and this is what I was saying to you earlier, Alicia. I said, remind me to talk about my I'm sorry statement, right? So when I, it's not just this class, it's every class I teach. Um, if I call on somebody that got their hand up, I say, yeah, so-and-so. And they go, sorry. And I stop and I go, are you sorry? 
<laughs> is that <laughs> a fill- are, is that a filler or are you actually sorry? They're like, oh, I just didn't want to interrupt. I interrupt. I say you paid you paid thousands of dollars to ask that question. Please don't apologize to me about your right to ask me a question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if everything you do is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, before you go to tell yeah. the physician, I'm sorry, I'm I sorry, a, you, almost, question, you almost don't believe. But... Well, and I let me insert there another comment. So in the medical profession, residents, look at how they behave compared to our graduate students. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A resident takes ownership. They make mistakes. Yeah. And... And I love when we have our grand rounds and go over patients and the residents just tell you the bare minimum. They're like, you know, this patient's this age, Mm -hmm. gender, here's the problem, here's what they were evaluated for, we did this procedure, here was the complication, here was what we did. And they are just bing, 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 matter of fact. This is what was done. Here is the complication we did not anticipate. Here is how we managed it. This is what we should have done differently. This would have prevented the following. Mm -hmm. And I want us to get to the point where we can just stop attaching this feely, warm, fuzzy stuff to whatever it is we feel Mm -hmm. with what we've done wrong and stop being embarrassed. Just be accountable yes and so the wait but there's no there's no incentive to be accountable Um, what incentive is there when you're not accountable i think it's a cultural issue Mm -hmm. so the medical model you have to be accountable Mm -hmm. because you are the responsible party but we get involved in dysphagia Mm -hmm. we make recommendations to physicians who rely on us for our expertise Mm -hmm. but if we made a mistake in our recommendation the person who's accountable is the physician. No, but what I mean, I understand what you're saying, but what is an example of us being accountable? So the example you mm. gave with the perforation was a big obvious one that you can yep. go back, redo the floor and say, you missed that, that didn't just show up somewhere between your floor yep. and the subsequent floor or whatever. Yep. There was a fever, blah, blah, blah. Yep. But in most situations, it's not that immediate, right? So if someone is discharged with the wrong diet, mm-hmm. discharged with a peg they didn't need, mm-hmm. they often come back they maybe they never come back we've seen people with pegs nine years out with a normal swallow only because they came for a research study so i'm worried that the accountability can't be put on us as easily as a physician that maybe just did a surgery or maybe did the wrong meds and people know they can come back to them yeah well Well, they can trace back i think you just stated my point we are not accountable right physician is accountable for our mistakes Mm -hmm. and i think if we're going to be in this business yeah we need to be accountable equally. But yes. how would we, though? Do you see what well, I'm saying? I, I, I don't think, think there's a culture a, I think that we don't see those things. Well, right. here's I'm the worried thing. that we can't do it internally. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we aren't yeah. doing it internally. Right. And here's the thing that I take issue with. Yeah. We don't want to be called a therapist. Right. There's occupational <laughs> therapy, physical right. therapy. Yeah. Well, the reason they are therapists is because the physician is responsible yeah. and prescribes to them. But we want to be the pathologist. Yeah. But we don't act like one. Yeah. We act like a therapist, yes, but we, we want the name of pathologist yeah, so we can a be really autonomous. That's a really great point. Wow. And that's so, a really great point. Yeah. So can I'm going to say... we just say, drop the mic yeah. now? <laughs> <laughs> so I just have this to say to our own professional leadership, mm-hmm. of which I am taking ownership mm-hmm. of being part of. And I plan to be making a difference mm-hmm. in this capacity. Mm-hmm. I think that I would really like our profession to stop being wishy-washy. And if we've got an area of our field where somebody dies because we made a mistake, Mm -hmm. then we have got to have standards Mm -hmm. in the same way every medical profession does. Mm -hmm. Physicians have standard protocols, and there's Mm -hmm. nothing recommended or suggested about it. Mm -hmm. There are standards of practice they have to do. They spend so much more money than us to keep up with their knowledge. Absolutely. And they also have to do a lot more procedures and see more patients of every kind that they're going to treat than we even come close to. And I've heard several physicians take issue with our profession on this. I have too, absolutely. And I think we are facing a fork in the road. Not too far off, the AMA is going to move forward and take our privileges away. AMA is American Medical Association. Yep. And I can tell you that pediatricians, surgeons, gastroenterologists, pulmonary docs, radiologists are all looking at our incompetencies. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that lightly. Yeah. Because it's true. People who graduate from accredited programs, given the stamp of approval, they know what they're doing and they think they do Mm -hmm. because that's what they've been told. Mm -hmm. And we know that you have an inverse relationship of confidence with competence. Yes. That the less experience you have in something, you're probably going to see it more simply. Dunning-Kruger effect. Yep. 
And so we've got people practicing who really think they know enough yeah. mm-hmm. to do what they're doing because that's what they were told and they shouldn't be doing it at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How many times have you heard, just fake it till you make it. You yep. just got to get out it's there. It's not even and just heard patients. it. It's posted all over Facebook. Yeah. Trust your gut. I don't want gut. a surgeon trusting oh their gut goodness. on my gut. Yes. Okay. Good that's, point. But I yeah. don't want that. Yeah. And this is a place where everything we do affects health status. So we, and so, and the the stakes are high. Yeah, the stakes are high. But don't you think that's the reason why? So the analogy I like to draw, so I always say, um, self-preservation should not supersede effective rehabilitation hmm. but it always does because people yep. don't want to admit what that what they don't yep. know because they would have to say i have hurt people mm-hmm. inadvertently mm-hmm. and it's easy to say if you know better do better but they just rather not sometimes know better right yeah. and that's not just in our field this yeah. happens across the world but when the stakes are high then your likelihood to become defensive is high yep and your likelihood to ask questions is goes down yeah. right because that's you right. don't want to say i've been practicing for 20 years right now we're talking about new grads but i can't say i think what happens with not all but some seasoned clinicians is they know how to speak the lingo a bit better Mm -hmm. but they're not saying anything more right yeah they understand the system better they understand the metal they understand all of the medical terminology they know what departments does that they've learned this so they sound better but if you say hey guys can you just tell me what muscles elevate the larynx i always go back to that example then it's pin drops like mm-hmm. you can hear, you can hear cotton balls rolling on carpets at that moment, right? Yeah. It's yes. so quiet. Yeah. And I'm just like, wow, that's really amazing. And I'll point to my bicep and say, does this pull my my fist closer or farther from my shoulder? <laughs> but like, well, that's your bicep, of course. So why do we know uh, all these other muscles yeah. and not the ones in yeah. your neck? Well, yeah. There's no there's no incentive to learn the muscles. Yeah. Well, because well, it doesn't change your diet recommendations, right. unfortunately. Because right. that's the outcome variable. It's not physiology. It's not pathology right it is not that's pathology exactly like right. pathologist but it's not physiology it's yeah. actually just filling that thing out online at yeah. the end of the day it's like we got to get yeah. a diet in them yeah yep. it's you, a functional thing well it's and the, the associated problem with this is that is the culture change that we talked about so mm-hmm. when you get in those uncomfortable situations where you ask somebody they don't know and, and maybe the knowledge base is missing it's well i took dysphagia when there wasn't even a dysphagia class, I don't have time to take, you know, comprehensive CEU courses. I have this caseload. It is the laundry list of excuses mm-hmm. instead of the ownership for yeah. it. Yep. And it, my biggest pet peeve is anybody know where I can get free CEUs? And it's like, oh my gosh, just <laughs> like take ownership. Yes, I do. To- it's PubMed Central. There are mm-hmm. all of the things that we teach. But it's everybody are else's free fault. free online. Everybody else's I fault. I have learned, most of what I've learned has not been online. It's from reading papers and talking to people. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? When yep. I go to DRS, sure, I learn I learn a, something that tells me I got to go read that paper, right? Yeah. That 10-minute right. talk maybe go, oh, that's a whole area I exactly. need to read up on. Yeah. No, it, that's I right. don't go, well, and in 10 minutes, they didn't sp- finish breaking it down. So that's all. That, I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So true. And in this day and age, there's just no excuse. We have a plethora of information at our fingertips. Yeah. PubMed, like you said, but even if you just don't understand how the anatomy and physiology works, that stuff hasn't changed in a long time. That's it's not right. changed there are, ever. There, I go it's online, still the same. So beautiful. And it's going to be the images. same. Yeah. yeah. It's, the it's same. so true. And understanding that, and, and the thing is, is that it's not just to be able to spout off muscles. It's mm-hmm. things that happen to patient affect, things that happen to patients affect the anatomy, they affect the physiology. Yep. These things, there's a direct correlation here to understand how to treat it. Exactly. That's if you exactly take right. out that piece, you're missing the whole point. Exactly. Yeah. But I think one of the influences, and I think we're at a tipping point where we should really consider medical track training. Mm. So the I suspect our standards were heavily driven by the fact that 85 to 90% mm-hmm. of our graduates went into the public school. Mm-hmm. And that's a setting where at one time, we did some traditional activities that did not include medical-based yeah. training. Mm-hmm. But we are now at almost 50-50 yeah. of our graduating class going into a medical setting, mm-hmm. and we've done very little to change our, our training yes. standards. Yeah. But I also don't think every, every accredited program currently should not be given the privilege of training medical-based practice. Ooh, I like that. So like Bob, that. this is not new. Bob Ringle at one time went on a circuit, mm-hmm. and his whole premise was, I don't want more training programs. Mm-hmm. I want better training oh, programs. Oh, so with you, this is why the SLPG drives me crazy, but go for it. <laughs> yeah, so 
So I didn't quite understand fully at the time that he was going around talking about this, what he was talking about, but now I have a better understanding, mm -hmm. and I agree with him. And I think only those places yep. that can offer their graduate students clinical exposure mm -hmm. to the kinds of activities they need to get mm -hmm. their competencies in mm -hmm. should train those competencies. Right, yeah. So if you don't have access to public schools, don't train people to go mm -hmm. to the public schools. But I will tell you, public schools still require you to do something with trach and vent. Mm -hmm. A lot of the special needs populations mm -hmm. have feeding tubes and the speech pathologist often is the one who manages that. And yeah. in the public school setting, you also have to advocate for the kids having equal rights mm -hmm. to all of the same mealtime experiences their classmates do. Still so I wouldn't say a public school clinician is exempt. Mm -hmm. I think they need to have the same basic knowledge because sure. they also see kids with craniofacial anomalies oh. and several other kinds of medically based mm -hmm. congenital problems and syndromes, yeah. particularly Julie, special ed thing, programs. The thing that drives me bonkers is we're not talking about new anatomy people have to learn. No. The same anatomy they learn exactly. for voice and speech and resonance, mm -hmm. those are the same ones we use for swallowing. Mm -hmm. it, sh it really shouldn't be that hard. Right. to, to no, I'm not saying to teach it, no, but I, but to, I but, to, but to be interested in the same things yes. you're trying to get Johnny to say s better or not be so hypernasal. The same structure is used in something else. Yeah. So I'm I'm worried about the teeth pulling involved. Well, I think we need to be smart. So you know that saying, work smarter, smart, not harder. Not harder. Yes. Yeah. So we have been very uncreative in meeting the same challenges our medical counterparts have been challenged by for a long yeah. time and have wrestled with mm -hmm. and are winning. So we have this big hang up on the exponential growth and what we know. That's not unique to us. Mm -hmm. The medical profession has the same challenge. Yep. We have to be more in agreement of what are the foundational things we need to know. Yeah. And our undergraduate major, so we talked over lunch today mm -hmm. about the grade inflation. Right. Why in the heck does more than 50% of our undergraduate makeup have a 4 yeah. yeah. There's no way they earn a 4 yeah. That should be reserved for the top Absolutely. 10 exactly. to 15%. Exactly. We need a Gaussian curve. Right. Why is it so easy to get a 4 as an undergrad? Do we really have basket weaving as our major? Yes. I would really encourage that we think about really toughening up yep. our undergraduate mm -hmm. and make it truly preparatory uh, for graduate so school. Do you remember Preach. that Ashley? Okay, we're never getting off this rant right I now. We're just, <laughs> we are ranting on this. There's no we're other gonna topics. We're going to be shoving each other for the I microphone know, here in a second. My iPhone is going to explode. But let me just say this. Do you remember that Ashley leader episode about the bottleneck of getting into grad school yeah. and I said the problem is that there is a bottleneck because there are so many undergrads these same programs that know they only take 30 people have an undergrad of 100 people and they know that every other program is the same way but guess what the undergrad brings too much money yep so but the thing is, I, I'm okay with that as long as they say the top 40 got into programs. They make it they make it as if everyone's going to get in, and they can't possibly all right. get no. in. Yeah. And we don't want them to. And I and agree with you, because me in you. medical school, do we want everyone who applies to get in? No. No. But they also I don't have, have a position to be yeah. anybody. And we have a weed-out system. That's the thing. That's the point, but we, they, but we, don't, we don't agree with that quite the same way. Go no. ahead, Julie. Well, I was just going to say one thing I can share with you, again, from my experience at Arizona. Mm -hmm. One time we had 350 in our undergraduate major, and we added, wow. yeah, and so we were looking at our curriculum and we thought, well, we had to, I think we added, everybody had to take basic algebra as part of their undergraduate major. Mm -hmm. They immediately went down to 150 majors. Math, a basic math yeah. requirement mm -hmm. that I had in junior high, mm -hmm. and it weeded out half of them. So let good. me ask, no, I mean, that's not like, good because I couldn't be switched with, I swear yeah. I can't solve for X You have worth a different graph. math problem. I do have you're, a very weird, like greater than less than like the same thing, I have problems. But, but you do oh, other things that are But you can learn it. No, but, and, and we had to have had a basic to. math requirement. We had three options. It wasn't just, um, it wasn't just um, algebra. I took finite math. I passed that sucker. And then I became, I, then I yeah. went to speech. What? I don't even that's know what finite math is. It was such a it was such an experience for me when I was an undergrad. I spent my first two years. My major was biomedical engineering, oh. and the the first two years of courses are weeding people out, figuring out who is at the top, who's at the bottom. When you took when I took organic chemistry, they said six of you will get an A in this class, mm -hmm. and that was it was a, the most challenging course I've ever taken. 
I think I ended up with a B, and I have never been more proud yeah. of a grade yeah. exactly. in my life. My, yes. my undergraduate was not in our major. Yeah. I took basic science courses, yeah. and mm. I actually started out pre-physical therapy. So pre-physical therapy was a major, mm-hmm. and it's a pre-professional yep. undergraduate. So you have a whole curriculum where you're taking – I took anatomy and physiology with pre-meds. Yeah. Actually, why don't, why don't we do the undergrad to be a little bit more extensive? Like, why do they have two years of like frolicking with, because, you know, like whatever? And then we the last have to have gen ed. It's because it's the college, but, but that you're not in. not it's necessarily. Yeah, well, it's because a like in college. well, what I mean is, if you're pre med, these people are they know they're going to pre med, so they uh-huh. gear all yeah. their gen ed to ward it. But yeah. they well, that's true. That's but true. they know earlier they, than the junior. There are year. some gen eds everybody has to take. Sure, sure. So Northwestern has gone to an interesting model where they've eliminated our major and they just recruit from their science major. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And th- it's for that purpose. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how that experience of recruiting out of that major has mm-hmm. gone, but I don't think that's a bad idea. Yeah, I think, yes. for example, if you're gonna go into a medical setting, you should have chemistry, biochemistry. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. You, you should have physics. Yeah, because yeah. when you do like blood labs, you need to be able that's to right. think through it. That's right. Well, what's ridiculous to me is students spend four years in an undergrad program, and we teach in the graduate level, and these people come and they don't understand anatomy and physiology yeah. of speech you and hearing teach it. and it's like what did you do for four years no, like if you don't true. understand the the anatomy of the larynx that should yeah. be you have an undergrad degree but who taught it right somebody who didn't know the anatomy if and physiology but, and and but who's going to be accountable for that nobody you know why because there wasn't an expert and they got they what they do is they usually get the um, doc student who has an interest who's doing a dissertation yep. somewhere near like motor speech or something yep. like that. That's right. They're looking at form oh, and frequencies, at and you're lucky to get that right. My husband, whose child language taught anatomy and physiology, yeah. but I'd rather take, I would rather in grad school. But he take did a somebody. great job. Yeah, <laughs> I'd rather if I was looking at graduate admissions, I'd rather take somebody with a biology major yeah. that never touched a, a yes. speech and hearing class because at least they understand how to think. Through anatomy so can, physiology. can I just put you just you just totally set me up with that word that you put emphasis on, um, think, and so part of the thing is it's not so much that you can provide you can upload this information to somebody's brain exactly. if they don't know what to do with it right mm-hmm. so there's a certain level of ability to think through a problem That's I right. have to say someone's gonna look this up but my not GR it was GREs right math. Not get me into any reasonable like I'm going to I'm going to Trump University with my GRE in math, okay? But my at the time there was that whole analysis thing. Mm -hmm. I blew that thing out of the water, and only to find out nobody cares about it. They care about if I can divide with two numbers when a calculator will do that for me. That didn't Mm -hmm. require me to critically appraise information. But my ability to answer those. 15 word long, you know, sentence yeah. long things about watermelons or whatever it is, I was able to do that brilliantly. Like yeah. I can s- yeah. sift out the, the crap and say, this is what the important information to me. That means that if I decide today, I'm not going to do swallowing anymore. Forget it. I can't be bothered. And I'm going to move into like ocular movement. I know what I need to do. I can do it. Yeah. But that's because not, be- <clears throat> I mean, we all are born with a certain level of talent, but guess what? It's been honed through training and yeah. schools yeah. I've been through, that. where at the time people didn't give me the answers. It was mm-hmm. problem-based learning. I didn't know it was problem-based learning. Mm-hmm. It was not spoon-fed yeah. learning. Yeah, that's right. But it was a biomedical engineer yeah. model. They say, here's a problem, go figure it out, tell it, and when you come back, it's okay if it's yeah. not perfect. Yeah. Tell us where you went right, yeah. tell us you went wrong, what'd you do, Everything. how you fix it. It's about yeah. understanding how things work and how to analyze things. Yeah. And right now, that's not the case. It's like, if you don't tell somebody a protocol, yeah. they can't function. Yeah. Is this going to be on the test? Oh my God. (laughs) Don't. I'll set for a rant. I need a glass of wine. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Well, let me say, too, um, again, at UC Davis, there was this great opportunity to go through some different courses. And one was on um, problem based training. Mm -hmm. And it was really geared towards folks who were going to do flipped classroom work with Mm -hmm. the medical students. So what they did was go to block training. I'd love to see our profession wrestle with this. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of work to set up, but once set up, yeah. it's really great. And the only risk is students are going to think you're not teaching them. Um, they unfortunately have no concept of how hard it is to set up a student-led yeah 
activity mm. where the goal is Blended to draw learning. that's what you're well sort of it's a yeah. so, i think of it as socratic teaching yep. socratic method is so much harder than spoon feeding didactic okay. yep. where they sit they listen to you talk and then you give them a test to see what they retain that you told them or could possibly make some convergence mm -hmm. of your ideas mm -hmm. but actually the flip classroom is you give them like a ted talk what if we had to consolidate what we lectured on yeah. They were responsible for the reading. Yep. I usually would give my students targeted questions because if you read for information, you retain it better than yep. if you just read it and digest mm -hmm. in general. So I'd have them read for questions and then they'd have a case they would watch and they had questions yeah. they had to answer and then they would come prepared to discuss them. So up until about 2008, my students loved that. After 2008, I got negative feedback yeah. because they did not like having to problem solve without being told what to look what for. What happened 2008? That was when the new millennials who are being taught yeah. with Ooh. standardized testing, computer-based learning, online instruction. Immediate AKA access to information. They <laughs> needed to be told how to do yeah. it, how to think yep. about it, and then once I trial run, based on your feedback, I can now do it. And did they all get medal participation medals? Not out of my class. <laughs> well, see, that's the issue. Yes. So my, I'm a little bit worried that um, the excellence level that they're used to was false. And you they're worried about failing more than they are about I learning. Think that's, I, you know, I don't think they need medals. <clears throat> yeah. But I do think that um, one of the things that's happening is they're more risk aversive. That's what um, I'm worried about. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I think that... Um, you're right, and I think you're right about the association of we reinforce and give um, awards for mediocrity. And everyone's special. And I don't mean to diminish anybody who's turned on by that, but, but it's just to say that I think sometimes you have to fail. Yeah. You just have to. Yeah. And, and that should inspire you yes. to want to be better. Mm -hmm. And if you are just so sure somebody's going to give you a stroke on the back and say, oh, good job, even mm -hmm. though you really yeah. did a mediocrity, yeah. <laughs> mediocre kind of job on that, yeah. you're never going to be excellent. Right. I, you know, the people who do well and excel are the ones with fire in their <laughs> belly. They want to be better, and it, they don't want to hear, yeah. that was great. But yeah. they here's just what need I learned. to know how they could be better. Here's what I learned about that, because I'm an avid NPR person. I don't remember what show it was on. But they were saying part of the issue is the goal is no longer to be excellent. The goal is to be better than the average. You're right. And so social media testing. and social media, exactly. And social media <laughs> determines what the average is. And it's just about one upping enough, <clears throat> not so much to be yep. fake, but yep. enough to be believable. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes those standards creep in, even if the average is artificially skewed to the good side, That's where true. you retain the, the Gaussian curve is not there. The bill shaped curve is not there. Right. Yep. Yep. And you know, the part of the issue is I say to my class, if every one of you truly earned an A, I'm not one of those people who's like, I'm sorry, but we're going to give yeah. you a C. No, that's right. It, that doesn't matter to me. Yeah. But if you didn't, but you're also never going to earn A in my class unless you actually know this. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. your A is going to be a medal unto itself, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You earned it. You earned it. Yeah. And you deserve it. I'm a little bit worried about what's, what's happening now. Mm -hmm. So can we quickly revisit the American Medical Association? Mm -hmm. Because that impacts the current clinicians, the future clinicians, right? Yeah, our profession. Our profession, because think of the number of people who will not be able to have a job if dysphagia goes away. If it's no longer under yeah. our scope of practice, and we have to remember the monster in terms of power is the AMA. ASHA is a whipping boy of yep. our AMA in terms yep. of the amount mm -hmm. of power and political clout yep. that they have compared mm -hmm. to ASHA. Mm -hmm. So what are the potential risks associated? So if I have one. Okay, tell me. Yeah. It, it's already happened with nasoendoscopy and stroboscopy for voice. Okay. So all it takes is somebody in a yep. state to go to their state legislature and have it declared in their state that this particular methodology or procedure or practice should be out of the scope of practice in our state because I have these examples where somebody did a really bad job and I had to fix the problem with the patient or I was responsible for some of the problems that arose. And all they have to do is state by state take our privileges away because yeah. ultimately state legislation is what determines what's in the scope of our practice right. that's in true. a given location. Mm -hmm. And that's where it starts. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's then, that easy. It An is, infection. And it's actually infection, the easiest right? level because they don't have to go to Congress. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They can do it locally and then they're happy because now 
in that state, we no longer have our privileges. They don't have, the physicians don't have to worry about the consequences of those who don't do a great job costing mm -hmm. them their patient's ability. Yeah. So let me then say, won't speech pathologists reply with, right, but then they're going to notice that all these patients aren't being seen and they're getting sick. Is Who's going who's gonna to see the patients if they do that? What would your reply be to, be to that? Um, I think the physicians don't think that's going to be a problem. Okay. Yeah. And I'll tell you why is because I when I worked at Johns Hopkins, I worked with a lot of surgeons and physicians that are have been there for a long time. And they say, you know what, before speech pathologists were dealing with dysphagia, my patients were fine. Yep. And and look at the recent publications. Where do you think that's taking us? Yeah. You know One what, of the more recent yeah. ones was about aspiration outcomes in the long run, and it made no difference. Made no yeah. difference. So if it makes no difference, mm -hmm. why do we need anyone? Yeah. Because the physicians think what we're doing is determining whether there's aspiration or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They don't understand yeah. that actually what we're doing is assessing pathophysiology. In yeah. fact, I would propose more than half of our clinicians don't understand mm -hmm. that what we are so trying true, yeah. to do is not to detect the presence or, uh, presence or absence of aspiration. Our job is to determine pathophysiology. Right. In fact, I would make the argument that because we actually image at such a slow rate, I'm going to wager a bet. Microaspiration is normal. Oh, I'm going to bet oh, that, yeah. that that actually yeah. isn't what we should be concerned yeah. about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The bulk of the time, aspiration shouldn't matter. Absolutely. Right. It really shouldn't. Well, what worries yep. me, and I'm, I'm going to say this, it's, a, it's bold and it's a little controversial. Shots fired already. Shots fired, but you know, this is my soapbox, is that <laughs> I think that it comes back to, we talked about being risk averse. And I think yeah. that a major challenge that's happening right now is clinicians are extremely risk averse. What I hear yes. is aspiration not on my watch. So NIMBY, not in my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> so what ends up happening, and this this really worries me, is that in the presence of being risk averse, we're making recommendations that are causing more harm to our patients. Yep. So a patient that has very mild amount of aspiration, maybe some residue that's getting a recommendation for a honey thick liquid, God forbid, a peg tube, inappropriately, now we've set this patient up for yep. malnutrition, dehydration. dehydration. Um, infection, infection for from a from a peg infection. Now we have instead of one maybe benign non-issue, we've set up six more issues. Mm -hmm. So that worries me because that's iatrogenic, exactly. Yes. Yeah. and and that's a problem because and we are not accountable for it. That's my point. Sometimes I look at cases and I'm like, you would have been better off if you weren't seen by a speech pathologist. Oh my gosh, I know. And just let spontaneous recovery happen. Right. And yeah. how many times would that be the case? Probably the, more often see, than not. So yeah. Julie, I just and wanna... I hate to say it. It's you know, oh, but, but it's, it's true. when I got to Utah, the a large proportion of the surgeons did not want their patients after surgery to yeah. be seen by mm -hmm. speech pathology because they didn't want a made NPO. Yeah. And, and I don't blame them. And I don't either yeah. because quite honestly, there's a big difference between somebody who came in normal and had a, an expected anticipated change in their cranial nerve status. And then you make them deconditioned on top of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's a big difference between that person and somebody who's supposed stroke. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, but the thing is that all of our, we can't even say, let's not even just put this on the clinicians. What does our research show? Mm -hmm. So when we go to, I'm going to turn to the scientists, our outcome variables historically has been aspiration, yeah. right? Yeah. In a lot of papers, yeah. um, it's not whether or not physiology is responsible for it. How many papers have you seen where they've tested a treatment and they said, let's take people with UES issues and this treatment is supposed to work for UES issues and see if the UES changes and if that's responsible for aberrant bolus flow. No, they take everyone with dysphagia yeah. and then they put them all through the black box and they come out with le with PA scores that have changed. And we're not even talking pa pathology. So then we can't even get mad that clinicians are doing this in their practice because in fact they have time crunches they don't have frame by frame mm -hmm. analysis time they don't have research assistants and grants that are helping them do but this it's so even... so it's it's yeah. so then well, here's the issue that physicians are looking at the evidence to say yep. aspiration doesn't matter that's the that's a scientist's fault but it's even it's even it's worse our, than that when, it's when the research is diet yeah but but clinical research voice. dominates what we do no one's looking at i'm not saying they shouldn't be but they're not looking at animal model studies to do that they're not looking at even the I stuff agree. that i do which is um, it's, you know, it's very experimental. It's not like, let's take a routine clinical circumstance and test right. what SLPs do. Well, on that note too, so 
what, however long ago it was, I was given the task of giving what we know now and where should we go in the next future on video fluoroscopy. And I thought, I don't know another method of recording of a physiologic anything mm -hmm. where we can't apply the Nyquist theory to our sampling rates. Yet we practice video fluoro and use a recommendation based on what? Yes. Not what is normally. Yeah. And I could not find anything in our literature that would be clinically meaningful except for bolus flow right. through the pharynx mm -hmm. to estimate what we need. Right. Yeah. That is abysmal. Right. We are doing a practice only based on inherited media yeah. Yeah. that was 30 frames per second because yeah. it was a reel-to-reel -reel or VHS. And it's a fight to even get 30 frames a second. No. I mean, some people are... Some, have... No, a lot of clinicians are trying to get from 7 or 15 yeah. to 30. But well, the issue and is... that works if it's plus or minus aspiration. Sure. Because you can see if aspiration... Sure. Happened, you can see... That's our problem, right? I think yeah. case in point. You don't need a high sampling rate for whether aspiration occurred sure. or not. But you do need a high sampling rate for physiology. For the epiglottis physiology. for crying yeah. out loud. If and we it, could say something about what physiology yes, clinically matters. And the information matters. is right yeah. there. Yeah. It's like, this is going to sound ridiculous, but it's like a, a, a neurologist looking at an MRI, but then making a recommendation on their headache. Yeah. It's yeah. like the information yeah. is there. We're not yeah. using it. Well, that's my yeah. issue with science is that you have these fluoros and you chose to do PEN-ASP only or, or, as your outcome variable. The That's it. So you could tell me why they aspirated, yeah. but you didn't report it. Well, and on that note, how many times does a person get a CT or an MR and get their final report that day? Yeah. Yeah. Never. Well, this is right. the Two other thing. To three Why weeks are later. we turning it around by 4 p.m.? That yeah. same day? It's impossible. Well, and furthermore, I really should see if I can get this published. We did a survey as I was going out the door at Arizona, and it was just basically to ask clinicians um, something about the frequency with which the first time you see a patient is in the video fluoro suite, mm -hmm. and then... Um, what do you do to make your decision about how to treat them? And then what kind of training do you do? So mm -hmm. I, I would have to pull up the data to tell you exactly, but the finding was pretty horrifying. So 80% of the time, something like that, it was the first time that the clinician met the patient. The physician had ordered an MBS. They met them in the suite. First time to see the patient. Mm -hmm. So did they have a hypothesis? Did they know anything about their cranial nerve status other than what was in the chart? No. They did some kind of a protocol, made some real-time observations. The bulk of clinicians do not record or review. Yep. Yeah. They give a recommendation on the spot, give a recommendation to the patient. No training, mm -hmm. yep. no practice, mm -hmm. send them out the door. Yeah, mm -hmm. we've taken some data. Or they give an order well. to the patient. The They're often not presented as recommendations. Yeah, so I mean, our, our whole protocol, um, how long does that exam take? Eh, they've got about 10 to 20 minutes with the patient. And no time is mm -hmm. taken to carefully evaluate mm -hmm. it. No time is taken to follow up with the patient and mm -hmm. review it with them. Now, let's contrast that to medical practice, going mm -hmm. back, circling back to how do we get respect from our physicians? Mm -hmm. Why don't we have a parallel practice? When do, we, when do physicians do surgery on a patient without having first seen them clinically? Mm -hmm. Radiologists will sometimes see them first in the suite, but they always interview them first, determine right. if this is the appropriate procedure for mm -hmm. them, whatnot. We need to have that same practice. Yeah. We should yeah. always see them first in the clinic, assess and make the decision on whether that is the next appropriate step. Mm -hmm. We should have some hypotheses. We should have some assessment of the cranial nerve mm -hmm. um, abilities and so forth so that we're testing hypotheses in the suite and we should follow up with them after that procedure so that we can do a post-procedural counsel mm -hmm. education recommendation. Mm -hmm. And why aren't we analyzing more systematically? I'm going to tell you why. And then I'm gonna well, ding the bell. Why. And then I'm gonna ding the bell. Okay. Because we ranted on this topic so hard. It's We're been like so 45 high on minutes. Our I know. Right now. I know. We can barely reach the microphone. But let this me just. Say, but let me just. <laughs> let me just say this right now. I feel like the way speech pathologists came into the medical world, it's almost like we are in our world right now in 2018, right? Mm -hmm. And. Somebody went back in time and just grabbed some friggin' pilgrims and just threw them into 2018, <laughs> and they. 
don't know what the hell to do. They're like, what are these things? Why are people wearing these things on their face? Like, what is, why is her hair short? They can't even. You just have to fake it till you make it. I know. And they can't, they can't function. They don't have a place. Like, all the things that are set up, they don't even know why things are on screens that are showing people. It's called a TV. Like, there are so many things that they don't understand because they were never prepared to be in 2018 because they're freaking pilgrims, right? And so all of these things that have been set up for professions that created this medical institution, they had it already arranged. Then mm-hmm. we just came scrambling into the future yeah. like, they got machines up in here. Yes. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And now we're trying to backtrack and say, oh, wait, we needed to gradually get to 2018. Yeah. But mm-hmm. our field just, we just got dumped in. And what's happened yeah. is that the people that got thrown in had to just learn through experience mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just learn on the job, fake it till they make it. And now those those individuals are teaching. So right. here's what happens is you get a patient, you get a clinician that has been practicing for 15 years, 20 years, however long. And they say, in my clinical experience, I have seen that my patients that have aortic valve replacements have laryngeal issues. They have voice problems. It's so crazy. But in my experience, so many patients, but they don't understand the rationale behind it and mm-hmm. the physiology and it just becomes this well in my experience well in my experience without the well that makes sense because of the recurrent laryngeal nerve wraps around the aorta so hmm, maybe somebody with a cardiac right. surgery they're missing the middle piece they're missing it's almost the like piece. every time it rains i see frogs frogs create rain, rain creates frogs you know what i mean but that's how it's being taught is that the we have students that go into these clinical placements and it's like you know, I just see this i just know i trust my gut i've seen this a million times i have 20 years experience and there's this whole piece that's missing. Right. And that's where... And again, there's no accountability for but if, not knowing that piece. But a physician doesn't care if you've seen a thousand patients like that. They want to know why. But the thing is, we can sort of talk circles around them enough to confuse them to them. <laughs> go, I don't have time for this UES business. And then if they're really busy, they'll be like, just Buzz what words. diet already? Buzz we words. need the bed. Well, and some physicians actually are just like, okay, I, I need you to be a specialist. Like, I'm going to have to trust yeah, you yes. on this. Well, and I think we have several. Mm-hmm. You know, every profession has a Gaussian curve of skill set. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're any exception. Mm-hmm. Same yeah. in medicine. I, you know, I deal with people in medicine who have enough of that kind of experience in yeah. clinical work, but they don't have the rationale behind mm-hmm. it. So again, I don't think that's unique. It's just that it is really costing us. Yes. In the medical environment with our physicians who come from really intensive training and background, and they really did sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Their lifestyle is completely different yes, than ours. Absolutely. And when we just come lollygagging in, mm-hmm. but we do have <laughs> colleagues who do hold themselves to a high standard. Yeah. I mean, we're doing pre, peri, and post-operative neurosurgery testing. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I just love the, we just come lollygagging. <laughs> <laughs> I want a hashtag lollygagging in SLP t-shirt to happen instead of we're superheroes. Yeah. You know those t-shirts? We need a hashtag lollygagging in. Because I thought, I thought all willy-nilly was funny, but lollygagging in is where, is where it's at. I'm telling oh, yeah. you right now. It really is. Oh well, gosh. Julie, I just have to say, what you said about being an expert is the way you started this, and it's almost like I want to be like, hashtag be the change. Yes. You know that yeah. whole be the change you. you want to see in the I world? Like that. That's almost where this comes down to. It's not too late for any single yeah. person no. out there listening to this to be the change. We're not hopeless. We, well, are, not, we are not hopeless. You can actually learn so much more than you think. Yeah. You just yeah. have to get past the thing that get over I'm yourself. never going to get, get over, over yourself. yourself. Get over yourself. Yeah, I was just going to say. Hashtag lollygagging. Hashtag be the change. Hashtag get over yourself. Well, and and I do want to emphasize that get over yourself piece because the one thing I will say is I I wouldn't want to advertise that I'm like Miss Smarty Pants either. I don't see myself that way. I view myself as an imposter. So I Mm -hmm. always am looking for learning something new. Mm -hmm. And I'm not afraid to be wrong. Yeah. And I really want to breed that culture. So in my clinic, I really want my clinicians to feel comfortable just saying, honestly, I'll never penalize honesty. Mm -hmm. If you Mm -hmm. say, this is what happened, here's the decision I made, and that's actually what was the source of the problem, Mm -hmm. I should have done it this way. As long as you problem solve that and we make that correction, Mm -hmm. I'm really good with that, Mm -hmm. and that's how I want to be. So I just wish we'd just And it's better there than when you're telling a loved one, so that peg... Yeah. Turns out shouldn't have done that. Right. I mean, you don't want to be saying that yeah. to them. No, that's right. 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 But I, I guess I get puzzled. I do know colleagues 
who are very rigid about not adopting change in the face of new evidence. Yeah. And I puzzle over that. Why yeah. wouldn't you want to give the best that requires, care to that your That requires admitting that you don't know what you said you knew. And for some people, it's not that easy. So, Julie, I just had this conversation with somebody. And there was the same question about why that happens. And I said, mm. we have to remember, we signed up to be peer-reviewed as scientists. Yeah. That is the culture we live in. Yeah. Anyone can go to the microphone at DRS. If Titus Humbert, who was 13 and seen a zillion <laughs> video fluoroscopies over my shoulder, my son goes, actually, that's in I the lyrics. Happen. Would you make that happen? I will happen. It will I happen. I want that. If that is so walks, awesome. If he walks to the microphone over someone who has been president five times, yep. and he is correct, everyone will go, you got to give it to Titus Humbert. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that would never happen right where that. you have a CFY going to the lead SLP and going, actually, that's not the epiglottis. That's the epiglottis. It would be like, no, you didn't. Yeah. No, you didn't just do that. You should have. You should have told somebody and that's let it go up. Yeah, that's that's a, that's the chain of command uh, matters clinically yeah. differently than it does in science. In science, anyone can have an opinion, yeah. and then we sign up for peer review every time we submit a yep. paper, a yep. grant. It nothing is real until it's been peer reviewed, and you have been crushed. And you see more critique, you learn. You're like, oh, so I don't it's learn true. until someone tells me what's wrong. That's how you learn. Yes. But that's not how you learn in clinic, by being, you know, yeah. bludgeoned and showing yourself up and opening yourself up to being rid riddled with bullets. That's how you lose your, lose your damn job. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So on that part. note, being riddled with bullets. <laughs> the, the listeners are like, <laughs> well, and that would with be actually themselves. relevant with the current times as well. Yeah, Everyone it's true. right now listening Absolutely. is like, holy. Oh my God. You know, I, feel like, I feel like, oh my gosh, like right now, it's almost like we needed that passion um, piss off or something. Like, <laughs> that's what we just had. Hashtag passion piss off. Like, that's what we needed. We needed. Julie, thank you so much for getting us all riled up. Yes. You're welcome. Right? It was fun watching I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad. We could soapbox on this topic. Ten more years of soapbox. We pretty much do every day. Every day. It always comes to this eventually. Doesn't it? <laughs> they got me.